Luke chapter 15 is where we'll go. Luke chapter 15. As a dad, one of the most important things that you will do, and you know this, is that you will display before your family what kind of a God it is that you worship and that you serve. You will display before your family what type of God it is that you worship and that you serve. A.W. Tozer, wonderful preacher and writer of days past, writes with timeless precision and conviction. He said this, The greatest thing about us, well, now that's an important thing, the, or I should say the, the, um, the most important thing about us, not the greatest, but the most important thing about us. Think about that. What is the most important thing about us? What is it that we introduce about ourselves when we meet somebody new? Maybe we talk about our occupation. Maybe we talk about a passion. Maybe we talk about a sport. Maybe we talk about a possession. Maybe we talk about our age or lack thereof. Uh, What's the most important thing about us? Sometimes it may be a relationship. It may be a legacy that we're living out because of somebody that's gone before us. What's the most important thing about us? A.W. Tozer says this. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We talked recently about going into Glacier Bay in Alaska and the glaciers looking so small off in the distance and looking insignificant until we got up close and they were majestic, several stories high, little dots floating around in front were the sea birds. The closer you get, the bigger they are. And I believe it's the same thing with our God. The closer we are to him, the bigger he is. But the farther away from him we are, the smaller he seems. He can't handle my problems. I'm an exception to his promises and commands. But the closer we get to him, the bigger he is. And I trust that in Luke chapter 15, we'll capture something of what our God is like. Because it will shape not only how we operate in this life, but how we deal with others as well. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Now, we pause there for a moment. Do you know what publicans and sinners are? Publicans were considered to be traitors by their Jewish brethren. Publicans were tax collectors. They would collect taxes for the oppressor, for the Romans. And they would collect the taxes from their own brethren. And they would often extort their brethren in order to gain more money to line their own pockets with. They were considered to be traitors. The lowest of the low, the scummiest of the scum. And sinners. The sinners would be those who were notoriously missing the mark. The people who had a reputation. 
William Barclay tells us that in that day, oftentimes the Pharisees would refer to the Gentiles of a land and would refer to the publicans and the Pharisees of the land as people of the land. And they had rules and regs, the Pharisees did, as to how they treated the people of the land. Why they were to have no business dealings with the people of the land. They weren't to trust them at all. They were not to welcome them at all, lest they themselves be contaminated. And yet here we have the publicans and the sinners coming to Jesus, not to be healed by him, not to get something from him. They come with one intention in mind, and that is to hear him. And he does not push them away. He does not make them feel awkward because of their low status. Instead, he receives them. He welcomes them and he teaches them. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That was the big, the big taboo. These were people coming to Jesus who would not be welcomed in the synagogues. They would not be welcomed, therefore, where the law was taught. They would not be welcomed in the ceremonies and the rites. They would not be welcomed in the feasts and the traditions. And yet Jesus responds by welcoming them, receiving them, eating with them, speaking with them, having discourse with them. And to the Pharisees, this is utterly distasteful. And they murmur within themselves. Do you believe this guy? Do you believe who he's talking to? Can you believe he actually eats with these people? And so what needed to be corrected then was their view of God. After all, it is, it is Jesus who came to show us what God is like. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold him. We, and we did. We, uh, humanity. We studied him. We looked at him. We saw his responses. And we saw him as one filled with grace and truth. He didn't push people away and say, Get away from me. You're not worthy Get away from me. You're polluted. Get away from me. You're corrupted. Jesus, full of grace and truth, showed us the heart of the Father. You see the same thing in the book of Hebrews when describing Jesus. He is the express image of his person, the Bible says. Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Now, the Pharisees have a bad perception of God. Some people, they think of God as unwise, as a cosmic killjoy. Why, if there's something that, that I like, God must be against it. If there's something that I enjoy, God must be against it. It's not that he's wise and has set in place prohibitions for my good. It's that, no, he's a killjoy and wants me to be miserable. Some think that God is a cosmic policeman, always looking for the time when we step out of line so he can throw on the lights and pull us over and give us a citation and a lecture. Some people think that God is not predictable. He's sort of like a cranky boss or sort of like a cranky grandpa. One minute he's giving you skittles, the next minute he's yelling at you to get off his lawn. 
can't predict what God is like. Some people think that, that God is like an absentee father. Oh, you know he's there. He's just not close. And if you really need something, you could go to him. But he's just not close or near. I think the Pharisees held all of these views to some extent. And Jesus is going to correct that view. And if there's nothing else that we get out of this morning's time together, I hope that it is this, an elevated perception of our God, an elevated understanding of what he is like. And with that elevated understanding, there would be three responses. One response would be, I need to know this God. I need to know this heavenly father. I need to know him. And the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ. Another response would be, I have received the Lord as my Savior. I need to understand my acceptableness in the beloved. I need to understand my relationship now with the Father as a result of my position in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, when you got saved, God didn't keep you at arm's length. When you got saved, he didn't say, all right, now I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to really lavish my love on you as long as you prove yourself. I want to see if you're serious. We just don't see any of that in what we're going to look at this morning. And the other thing would be this. Not only would the person who does not know God, not only should they have a desire to know him after, after seeing him elevated today, I trust the Spirit of God would use that to draw you to the Father. But for the person who knows Christ, our desire would be to understand better our position. And that, that understanding would lead us not to a carelessness, but to more of a carefulness. And not to a lawlessness, but more to a loving response of obedience to our Heavenly Father. But there is a third response also this morning, and that is this. There's a world out there that needs to know what our God is like. There's a world out there with a bunch of misperceptions about what God is like. And I'm afraid sometimes those misperceptions have come from us who call ourselves followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see what God is like. Here in verse 3, the Bible says, and he spake this parable unto them. Jesus knows the heart of hearts. He knows the, man, the heart of a man better than a man knows it himself. He knows that the Pharisees are murmuring. And so Jesus is now going to paint a portrait of what God is like. And his brush strokes are remarkable. You see, in verse 3, he spake a parable. A parable, as you know, is a story, isn't it? Parabolos, it takes a, a, an earthly story thrown alongside a heavenly truth that we might better understand the heavenly truth. And so that's what Jesus says. In verse, verse 4 we read, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I know that these are familiar texts to us, but I need to be reminded of them again and again and again. A man who had a hundred sheep was a wealthy man. A man that had a hundred sheep in his fold was a wealthy man. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, There's, there, to a man, to a man, if you have a hundred sheep and one of those sheep got lost, what do you do? 
Do you say, well, I've got 99 more. Oh, well, that's that old, old sheep's fault anyway. He wandered away. He's going to get what he deserves. Nothing I could do about it. He says, you won't do that. You'll count those sheep. You'll count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, 97, 98, 99. I had 100 earlier today. All right, sheep, hold still. Nobody move. Counting you again. One, two, 99. So you get your sheep into safekeeping, and then you go look for the one. You don't put a limit on the look. You don't put a limit on the look. I'll only go two miles. I'll only go three miles. I'll only go if the weather's agreeable. I'll only go if it's not windy. I'll only go until I tire out. No, the Bible makes it clear. Jesus knows the hearts of these men. You'll go look for that sheep until you find it. See, the Pharisees and the scribes believed that as Jesus received these sinners and publicans and spoke with them and taught them, they believed Jesus was wasting his time. They believed that to deal with such people was a waste of time, energy, words, and resources. And Jesus says, you're willing to expend any amount of energy to go find an errant sheep. And when you find him, what do you do? Kick him and say, get up. Follow me. No, in fact, I'm walking behind you. You kick the sheep all the way back to the fold. You don't do that. Tie a rope around it and drag it along. You don't do that. You pick it up and you put it on your shoulders. And you go back, there's a spring in your step. Do you give it a lecture? Do you put your pointer finger in the little sheep's face there and give it a lecture? Sheep don't understand that kind of stuff. Dogs might, but sheep don't. You don't do that. You pick it up, you put it on your shoulders, and there's a spring in your step, and you head back to the fold. And you come back and you tell your friends, I found a sheep that was lost. Man, I, I tell you what, I went all over kinds, all kinds of ground. And yeah, I know it rained last night and everything. And, and, uh, but I found it. I found the sheep that was lost. I love what the Bible says in verse 7. I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. Now, the repentance is shown in the fact that the publicans and the sinners were coming to Jesus to hear him. His topic was going to be God. The nature of his, of his teachings would be righteousness and holiness. He would no doubt talk about, about the cross that he would face. He would no doubt talk about the sacrifices in the Old Testament that pointed to that coming, that coming uh, crucifixion. He, no doubt all of these things were part of that. They, but he opened his mouth and he taught them. And no doubt he taught them scriptures and he taught them applications of scriptures. The Pharisees and scribes say, that's a waste of time. But Jesus is telling them, no, oh, if just one sinner repented, heaven would rejoice. There'd be rejoicing in the presence of the angels. You know, the next parable Jesus speaks says in verse six, excuse me, in verse eight, either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace that I had lost. 
Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. You and I, we've seen, we've seen the pictures if we were in Sunday school as a child. When I was in Sunday school, it was a flannel graph. Maybe, uh, maybe later on it's video or something, but, or a film strip. How many remember film strips? Both of you, thank you. But we remember seeing the artist renditions of this lady with the coins. She would have them strewn about her forehead. Some scholars tell us that the coins would have been gained over time by great sacrifice and she would have accumulated these 10 coins. And if she lost everything, if she, if she went bankrupt, she was still enabled by the law to keep those coins. Those were very precious to her. They represented toil, but they were also at times associated with her marriage, her husband. And so she has these 10 coins. And I'm wondering if she constantly counts them. Constantly, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, I'm good. But somehow one of those coins escaped. Somehow one of them, without any fear for its own welfare, fell from her forehead to the ground and rolled away somewhere. And so she counts, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's a space there where the tenth is supposed to be. Where, where? Did it go? Warren Wearsby calls her search a whirlwind of organized pandemonium. A whirlwind of organized pandemonium. The windows in the house would have been narrow so a thief could not break through. The dirt floor would have been packed down because of traffic in there. Perhaps there was a rug as well. But she begins to search. It's kind of dark in there though so she gets a lamp. And she lights it and she's down on her hands and knees looking. She moves the carpet back. She looks in the cracks in the dirt. And finally, there's something that catches the corner of her eye. It's a little gleam. And she gets down on her hands and knees and there it is, leaning up against the wall from the floor. And she says, you thought you could get away from me. And she reaches and now suddenly there's rejoicing. In fact, she takes the rejoicing from out of her house into the streets. She is so happy that her neighbors now get in on the rejoicing. What's up with the crazy neighbor out in the street? I don't know. Let's go find out. I'll read about it on next door. Oh, let's go take a look. And so she's, she's telling everybody, I lost this coin, this coin. You know what I did to get this coin? You know how special this is? You know how precious this is? I lost it and I found it. She gets everybody else in on the celebration. Well, Jesus says in verse 10, likewise, I say unto you, unto you, there is joy in the presence of, of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. <coughs> and then we come to verse 11. I spent a long time on those first few verses. We're going to move from verse 11 through the rest rather quickly. That by no means is, I hope, an indication of the importance of the content. It's just simply an awareness of the time. So look with me here in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. A certain man had two sons. Why didn't he just say a man had two sons? Why did he say a certain man? No word is in here by accident. Every word is in here by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Why does he say a certain man? Well, some believe that there was something that mirrored this that actually had happened. That somebody in that audience might have known who that certain man was. You know how it is in church. Pastor, pastor may say, had a conversation with somebody this week. And what do we do? We, we tune out of what the conversation was about. We try to figure out who the conversation was with. Who was he? Who's he talking about? 
Oh, I know. Your wife. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you. Yeah. So a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And you and I, we're familiar with this. I understand that. But just to refresh our, our memories. In Bible days, it was unusual for a young man to leave the place where he grew up. That was the farm that his dad worked. That was the farm that his granddad worked. That was the farm that his great-granddad worked. It was a piece of property that traced back all the way to the days of, of, of uh, Joshua. The allotment in the land. You don't leave that and go into a far country. Besides that, if you go into a far country, they're not going to worship the God of Israel. And they're going, to, they're going to eat things that God says not to eat. And they're going to wear things God says not to wear. And they're going to do things God says not to do. And they're going to worship false gods and goddesses. You did not go off into a far country. It was spiritual shipwreck to do that. And here's a boy who says to his dad in so many words, I, I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. And so the father acquiesces. He gives to the boy the inheritance. Now, he has two sons. So according to Levitical law, the older son gets a double portion of the inheritance. The younger son would get a third then. It would be incumbent on the older boy later on in life to take care of his dad. And so the double portion was to finance that endeavor. And so the younger son gets his portion, his inheritance. Well, it's going to burn a hole in his pocket, isn't it? You see here in verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want. About the time you think it can't get worse, it does. He spends everything. There's nothing else in the bag. And now there's a famine and now he's hurting. He is hungry. So it says in verse 15, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, of that far country, a Gentile, a Jew serving a Gentile. And and the Bible says, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now he's feeding swine. Swine were an abomination to the Jews. Now he's feeding the swine. It gets worse, verse 16. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He would have filled his stomach with that that was given to the swine, but then he'd be stealing from the swine. And the Bible says that, as you saw in the last part of that verse, no man gave unto him. He had no reputation. He had no pedigree. He had no history. He had no clout in that place. Nobody regarded him. And he comes to himself. Is that what the Bible says in verse 17? And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Boy, he has a, he, he's, a wise, he's a wise son. Before he goes to reconcile with his father, he thinks about what he's going to say. That's very wise. Some people, they shoot from the hip. They wind up shooting themselves in the foot. So if we're going to reconcile with somebody, it's good to think of what we're going to say. Much reconciliation has, has actually turned into, into a worse divide by not choosing words carefully, by putting blame on the other person, by not accepting full responsibility for, for our actions. But that's not this boy. 
He's going to go back and, and, as, and he's rehearsed the speech. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I know my dad always has a help wanted sign outside. I don't want a place in the family. I just want a job. And the best chances of finding a job are where my dad is. And so he comes to himself and he doesn't blame his dad. Now, we live in a generation where people would blame their elders. Dad, you knew I had no money sense. You knew I would spend that so quickly, but you gave it to me. I'm mad at you for giving me that inheritance. You should have held out. There's none of that. The Bible says in verse 19, where he says, I'm no more worthy to call thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. That's called humility. And then you come to verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Now, here's the crux of this morning's message. Here's the simple, simple uh, uh, outlining of the message. Verse 20, verse 20. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is how our heavenly father is. What's the purpose of the, of the text? The text is to expose to the Pharisees and the scribes the true heart of the heavenly father. And what is that true heart? Well, you see, first of all, the father looked. The father looked. And that's what God does. He's, he, he looks. He, he looks with, with an idea to save. He looks with the idea of helping. And so the, the Bible says that when, it, that, it's, that when he was a great way off, his father saw him. Now, because of the nature of the, of the illustration, the father has to be finite. Our heavenly father would have already known about our suffering in a far off land. But this father, he's finite for the sake of the illustration. And he's out on the porch. And you know, when somebody starts coming down your road, you wonder who's coming down my road. We do that all the time. You know, people live in rural places, the gravel road, they see a, a truck or a vehicle, dust behind it. Who's coming down my road? I didn't invite anybody. Who's this? Now, of course, we have the, you know, ring pro. Who's ringing my doorbell? I don't recognize them. I didn't invite them here. Who is that? Probably just casing the joint. I want to steal my seashell collection. I remember... Darren Purdy, living in Idaho, was telling me that he decided to take one of his sons, I think it was Daniel, to go visit the neighbor who lives from them, uh, separated by several acres. So he drives up in the neighbor's driveway, gets out of the car, and the neighbor comes onto the front porch with a sidearm. He says, I don't know who you are. I didn't invite you to be here. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to buy what you're selling. Get off my property. Don't even pet my dog. Get off the property. Well, Darren, being Darren, <laughs> he said, hey, my name's Darren, and this is my son, Daniel. We're your new neighbors. We just came to say hello. And the guy says, are you the one with the eight children? He said, yeah, that's us. He says, man, I've been dying to meet you. Hey, come on in. Let me show you around the place. That's my dog. You can pet him. He's not ferocious at all. But come on in. Man, what a turnaround, huh? Could have ended differently. But what a turnaround. Who's coming down my road? Well, the father, you know, the servants are going to wonder too. The dogs are barking, that natural alarm system. The dogs are barking. 
There's somebody coming down the road and they're disheveled, their clothes are torn and tattered, their hair is long and the beard is matted. Above all, he's barefooted. Who is this coming down the road? But the father recognizes something in the walk of the boy. He knows that's not a stranger. That's his boy. He'd recognize his boy anywhere. So he first looks. And then I want you to notice he had compassion on the boy. He longed to ease his suffering. He looked and he longed. He longed to ease his suffering. That's what compassion is. It's not just simply feeling for somebody. It's not simply feeling with somebody. It's having an understanding of what someone is going through with the desire to relieve the suffering. That's the compassion of our God. And so the, the, the dad's looking out. He looks, he longs, and then he lunges. I love this. The Bible says that he ran toward his boy. He ran. Man, if there was a porch, he, you know what he would do. He would take his tunic, pull it up under his belt. Now his, tu- his tunic has become shorts. And he jumps off of the porch and he runs to his boy. And he runs. Now, in Bible days, it was not a dignified thing for an old man to run. And I still submit to you, it is not a dignified thing for old men to run. But he goes to meet his boy. And he doesn't care who laughs at him. He doesn't care what people think. That's his boy. And the Bible says that he fell on his boy's neck and he kissed him. And that is that he just lavished his love upon him. He kissed him, the tenses, over and over in the eastern way, on one side, then the other side, and then the other side, and the other side of his cheek, of his cheek. And, and so this was a great scene, but the father's not done lavishing the boy with his love. He's not like some fathers would be standing on the porch saying, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it. I'm not lifting a finger. You left us high and dry. Here I, I bless you. I take care of you. I put a roof over your head. And I get no notice as to where you are. For all I knew, you could have been dead. You hurt me. And now I'm going to hurt you. You're going to have to earn your way back into this family. Well, I tell you, that is not the heart of the father at all, is it? The heart of the father. In fact, the boy has a speech he's been rehearsing all the way along, doesn't he? And in verse 21, the Bible says, The son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And you see the word of contrast in verse 22? It's like the father didn't even listen. The boy had another half of the speech to, to recite, but he's not going to get to recite that. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. He, bring forth the best robe. Look at his clothes. This is my son. Bring forth the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. He does not have to work his way back into the family. He does not have to work his way back into status before me. He has it because he's my boy. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. That's how we knew he was barefooted. Put shoes on it. It wasn't in the Greek. I didn't make that up. It says put shoes on his feet. I suppose it's in the Greek there. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Now that sounds like an awesome Father's Day to me. A barbecue. Anyway, verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. It was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The father looked. Our God is constantly on the lookout. The father had compassion. Our God has compassion on lost people. The father took the initiative and lunged once he saw the boy. He lunged. He ran after 
And God wants to do that through you and me. And the father lavished his love on that boy. Sometimes we get the idea that now that I'm saved, God's going to keep me at arm's length. I got to somehow, somehow work my way up the ladder to be close to him. My friend, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that position, you are made acceptable, not by your behavior, though you ought to behave rightly. You are made acceptable in the beloved. We're not, we're not acceptable to God based on our merit, but totally on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to enjoy that. Our disobediences, however, drive us away from that enjoyment. Our misbehavior drives us away from that enjoyment. But all oh, that we would repent when the Spirit of God speaks to our hearts. And all oh, that we would come to Him and there are worlds of forgiveness for the one who would turn back to God and repent and come to Him. Worlds of forgiveness. Oh, I can't go back to God. I've done too much. I've said too much. I've been too much. But according to what we read here, the heart of God is on display in this way. God's looking for you to come back. You don't have to go up to him with his back turned and tap him on the shoulder to get his attention. He is looking for you to come back. And if you'll just take a step toward him, he will leap in your direction. I used to think if I wandered 10 feet away from God, I got to go 10 feet back. If I wandered a mile, I got to go a mile back. Boy, from what I understand of the heart of our father, when I turn around to head back, Boom, he's right there, right there, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to once again let us serve him, ready to once again let us know him and enjoy him. The love of the Father. I love that. I remember the day that I got saved. I, I just love that idea that God was looking for me. I just love that idea, that, that the truth that God had compassion on me. And I... Stepped out into an aisle. Going into an aisle doesn't save you. Going forward doesn't save you. We understand that. But I wanted to find out more. And I found out that if I would receive the Savior, God would receive me. And God has lavished his love upon us. Isn't our God a great uh, lover of people? Isn't our God so generous? We were enjoying the weather yesterday. This is a very odd climate for June in the beautiful Yucca Valley. We were enjoying the weather yesterday and just enjoying the, the blessings of God. And our God is so good. You know, he even blesses people who don't know him. He even blesses people who run from him, but they're missing out on more. He even blesses those who at times use the tongue that he gave them to curse him. And yet they are surrounded by a myriad of benefits from the hand of God. Our God's generous. Our God's good. I want to read this and then conclude. I think this works beautifully as an Old Testament parallel and as a reminder of our, what our Heavenly Father is like. David writes in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Have you thought about that, his benefits? The benefits from the hand of the Heavenly Father? Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. 
The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He, make, he made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Glory! He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. That's our God. That's the God we get to serve. That's the God we get to worship. That's the God we get to love. That's the God we get to tell others about. That's our God. Let's pray.